This is from the New York Times magazine. It's called Depression's Upside. This is from a few years ago. They're talking about Andy Thompson. Yeah. And He's one of the colleagues right. I mentioned at the beginning. He says, this new theory of depression has directly affected his medical practice. Now, he is a psychiatrist. Oh, I want to hear this. So, quote, that's the litmus test for me, he says. Do these ideas help me treat my patients better? And I'll go on here. In recent years, Thompson has cut back on antidepressive prescriptions because, he says, he now believes the drugs can sometimes interfere with genuine recovery, making it harder for people to resolve their social dilemmas. And he continues here saying, I remember one patient who came in and said she needed to reduce her dosage, he says. I asked her if the antidepressants were working, and she said something I'll never forget. Yes, they're working great, she's told me. I feel so much better, but I'm still married to the same alcoholic son of a bitch. It's just now he's tolerable. There you go. I did read that one, and coming from a different vector, I also agree that drugs may be doing... A lot of people are beginning to think, actually, this is not a minority... Well, it might be a minority opinion, but it's not a rare opinion anymore. The drugs may be doing more harm than good. Right, even the idea that... Depression. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Which, that, that there have been some problems the, with some of the drug trials. And again, I don't want to come across, although I have unabashedly in previous podcasts uh, been sort of anti-traditional therapeutics for a lot of things. Um, but yeah, I want to reiterate for our audience that um, none, not, none of us is a psychiatrist or a, uh, a psychologist who treats patients in, in this way. Um, so... I want to make that very, very clear here at and the outset. Even if that statement is true, that drugs often do more harm than good in treating depression, that's not yet solved. That's a controversy that's occurring right now. Even if that turns out to be true, it doesn't mean drugs are never should never be part of the treatment for depression. It would mean that we need to use them more judiciously. I agree with that completely. Yeah. So I, you know, just for the sake of people who might overinterpret that statement. Right. right. So I wanted to throw this. This quotation is pretty dramatic, um, and here, here is a practicing psychiatrist who takes these ideas to heart and it has influenced the treatment of patients. So what, yeah, what, what do you, what do you think about that quote? Well, um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. And one of the ways that this hypothesis can best be tested would be in, um, uh, clinical, clinical practice. I mean, if we could, if we get a bunch of uh, experienced psychiatrists really deeply familiar with this theory and have them have it try to have it inform the way they work with patients and then have another group that doesn't have a clue about this theory and they just keep going with the best the best practices that don't include um, any uh, insights from this theory well, let's compare the outcomes. That, to me, is the, is the acid test. And um, so I guess I'm agreeing completely with Andy on that. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I want to see happen. But what I encounter again and again, especially with psychiatrists, is that they're not interested in understanding this theory. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't... They're not familiar with evolutionary concepts and they are I mean I've I'll never forget um, when one conversation with a psychiatrist saying that and you know I, I don't know I'm like Joe said I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist I don't I'm not a 
clinician of any kind. Um, in this area, I'm purely a theoretician. But uh, he, he told me that, you know, 80% of the people he, said, he sees, 80% of his patients, he said, they're not worth talking to at all. Just... Um, Meaning the talk's ask. not going to help them? What does yeah. that mean? Yeah. There is no helping therapy that's going to do any good. You figure out what the symptoms are, you come up with a diagnosis, and you start playing with your chemical cocktails. And that is the traditional sort of biochemical hypothesis of you know, modern psychiatry. And there, there is, that is a, they have a modern strain and likely the dominant strain of psychiatry, as I understand it. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be, um, we will eventually uh, figure out how to um, come up with, um, you know, maybe quite customized person-specific chemical cocktails that will erase uh, depression f from the human experience. Mm -hmm. But I am very concerned that that's going to really interfere with people's growth and development and their ability to um, successfully uh, that, 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 that pursue, pursue their um, dreams, successfully pursue their dreams and really make the most of their capacities and talents. This is not unique to depression or even psychology. Treating the symptom at the cost of the root problem mm. is a plague in medicine because patients come in complaining usually of the symptom, not of the underlying problem. That's so, true. oh, I hate that I'm diabetic and it's, you know, my vision is going bad and I'm on dialysis, but I'm not going to stop eating starchy, sugary foods, you know. So... Yeah, I totally agree that when the medications... So, a big part of how I understand depression is that it's a symptom designed to tell us there's an underlying problem. To that extent, my view of it is very compatible with yours. I think depression... Well, you see it as a strategy, I see it as a symptom, but depression is a motivator. You're going to be miserable, coffee, until you solve something. And, by the way, this still doesn't fit with chronic major depression, which isn't tied to changes in my, in my life status, if, if I had it. But uh, if I can get rid of my depression without fixing the underlying problem, then I'll still be married to the same alcoholic asshole, uh, in that patient's words. And so I completely agree that it can be a terrible mistake to fix the symptom before you understand its meaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, like fever. When we treat fever, well, people who treat fever at home with Tylenol may feel better and not come in and never get the pneumonia diagnosed in time. So, you know, symptoms are... Symptoms are not the problem. They're, they're the tip of an iceberg. I just want to read one more, one more piece, I think, which is apropos to what you just said. So Thompson says about antidepressant drugs that, in fact, sometimes they seem to be interfering with the solution so that patients are discouraged from dealing with this, your, their problems. Yeah. So we end up having to keep people on the drugs forever. It's as if these people have a bodily infection and modern psychiatry is just treating their fever. So he makes that analogy explicitly. There is, is a way around it, but most of the time we won't change until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. So mm -hmm. if we reduce the pain of staying the same, we're not going to change. Yeah, we, we, to, in order to radically change our behavior, it does require um, you know, a radical motivator. Yep. And one which is that does involve some honest signaling. I'm, or, I'm definitely on, on, on uh, board with that idea that some of these things have to, for a signal to be um, perceived as legitimate and acted upon, it has to confer some risk 
to the signaler. And I think that that actually has a, can explain a lot of some suicidal and parasitical suicidal behavior. Uh, but I'm not, again, I'm not saying that suicide is adaptive here. Another argument against depression being an adaptive motivator for change uh, is that an alternative would be optimism. I'm going to change because I see something bright and shiny that I want to pursue. And that happens too. And in fact, George Lakoff's uh, and some other people's uh, functional neurocognitive studies suggest that one of the big differences between liberals and conservatives is that liberals focus on opportunities and conservatives focus on threats. A threat-oriented person, you would predict, and by the way, I don't know how this prediction turns out, a threat-oriented person, you would predict, would be more motivated by depression, and an opportunity-oriented person would be more motivated, uh, sorry, uh, would be more, well, clearly more motivated by opportunity. An optimistic person would be more motivated by opportunity. So what I'm saying is misery is not the only thing that can make the we can say we're not going to change until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. But if the expected benefit of change is greater than the expected benefit of staying the same, that could also lead to change. But it's a much less common strategy. And incidentally, I have no information that suggests that uh, liberals are less prone to depression than conservatives. It's, you might predict that from this other information, but I don't know that But that's so. to the extent that uh, conservatives <clears throat> might be more uh, attuned to risks and threats. They clearly are. They're and obsessed that's with part risks of and threats. That's conservative you know, advertising yeah. and messaging. Um, it does fit in with the idea that, um, I don't know if they're more depressed either, <laughs> but uh, it does fit in with uh, certain, certain theorists' ideas about infections and, and parasitism and uh, ideological outlook, which we can get into at some point. I know that you... Um, you know what I'm talking about, Paul. Um, but this, but uh, bringing it back to Thompson's point that patient, as if patients with depression have a bodily infection and that modern psychiatry is just treating their fever uh, wrongheadedly, um, I want to make the point, because it's my area of interest, uh, the microbiome and, and microorganisms, that there's a lot of overlap between sickness behavior and with depression and anxiety. In fact, so some, of the, some of the psychomotor retardation and changes in behavior uh, are, have a lot of similarities with sickness behavior. And in fact, um, there is some new evidence uh, you know, looking at pathogens and changes of the makeup of the microbiome. And people have drawn uh, some inferences that having essentially an unhealthy composition of the microbes that inhabit your body may be linked quite closely to depressed mood and anxiety. Um, and that that can be fixed with antibiotics, certainly in mouse models, and that uh, even changes that we, that we perceive as being uh, similar to depression um, can be changed when we swap out the microbiomes of laboratory animals, which is so exploratory behavior, being more optimistic, um, that's, that's a feature which is influenced by, by the microbiome. Yeah. And work by uh, Bursick showed that quite, quite nicely. Um, so there's one of the things I wonder about hearing you speak about that is um, whether the um, the long term stress of a severe capacity opportunity mismatch, mm -hmm. even if it's just on a subconscious level, um, that could change body chemistry in a way that um, screws up your microbiome. Yep. And then you can get in all kinds of feedback loops. And mm -hmm. I'll give you two, two concrete examples of that. A recent paper just showed that uh, ex increased exposure to cortisol, stress hormone, cortisol, 
has been linked with increased production of virulence factors in the microbiome, which is kind of cool, I think. And another work by Mark Light uh, has over, over his career has shown that exposure to stress catecholamines also induces adverse changes in the microbiome, including growth of pathogens and virulence factors. So yeah, stress does bad things to your microbiome. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're essentially arguing, I think, Paul, by saying that, that, um, that the, the, the causality arrows might be that social stress might come with a variety of trade-offs that could um, cause downstream adverse changes in the microbiome and path, maybe the pathogen makeup of your that you're exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. But the pathogens that are causing you to be stressed out. Yeah. And that could lead to being less resourceful and even less able to negotiate your way out of a, yeah. um, a poor, um, inadequate social niche. It might also make you more desperate. So trying, I've, I've spent some time trying to try to think about the, your ideas. So some of the ideas that, you know, depression might be making the best of a bad job. If you're in this, this, this unfavorable social combination of social contracts that you don't seem to see, see a, a, a good way to get out of. And again, none of this, I don't think any of this has to be conscious or is conscious, I should mention. Yeah. That there may be some adaptive function to depressed mood, um, maybe shy of uh, major depression, that, that maybe has some utility in changing up some of those relationships. I, I do think that that's possible. And I, I, I like the idea of the, the escalation that might be involved in, in keeping the signal honest. Um, but I, it's occurred to me that suppose you're in the situation in which many of your social interactions actually are, are harmful to your fitness. So the other people are getting more benefit out of those interactions than you are. Um, I think that's, that's part of it. Yes. You know, there, be, there could be exploitation mm-hmm. that happens, especially in hierarchy, human hierarchies. Um, it's common in human interactions that, they're, that, 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 that the exchange of benefits from one partner to another is going to be unequal and that we do see these um, highly exploitative relationships uh, emerge. That if that's the case, and if that, that actually can literally make you sick and can change your microbiome, mm-hmm. uh, but it also increases the, the harms that could happen with um, just... This could be this could be self reinforcing. It seems to make a bad problem worse. Even, even it doesn't worse. seem like an adaptive strategy yeah. phrased that way. But if you have if you have a unhealthy microbiome, for instance, one that is likely to make you sick, and you're more likely to get wounded because you're being bullied every day and beaten up, for instance, then the consequence of that that continued interaction might make you more likely to have an infection and die. I think these two things are actually linked. We don't need to try too hard to separate the psychological from the physiological. If you buy into the biopsychosocial model of medicine, which I believe is overwhelmingly supported by evidence, then it's a mistake to try really too hard to put these in completely separate boxes. But there can be a preponderance of cognitive strategy or emotional strategy or physiologic response in a given situation. But these are all going to interplay with each other every time. They're, they're never going to be separable. That's partly what I meant by talking about uh, emergency room physicians and solving multi, multi-parametric problems all day long. Hardly anything is just what they present as. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know. And I should mention that I, you know, we've talked about suicide. I can think of four emergency physicians that I've known and trained with who have committed suicide. So expert problem solvers we may be, but it certainly does not exempt us from some of these very serious problems. 
So that could argue either way. It's not an adaptive strategy because expert problem solvers still can commit suicide, or it is an adaptive strategy because they're uh, being driven by their stresses and their depressions and their fears and anxieties allowed them to succeed at being emergency room doctors for a while. Long enough, certainly, to establish a household, find a partner, reproduce, things like that. Yeah. For a while. For a while. But, but then what goes? What happens when you go home and tell your wife and parents and, and friends that, you know, I'm burnt out, i got to totally change um, my career, maybe go back to school. Uh, how are you going to get support for that? Often not easy. Right. Sometimes so, yeah, so, so maybe that um, if you think about, say, socioeconomic attainment as a fitness landscape, that physicians are at a little a local peak, yep. right? Because we we enjoy relatively high socioeconomic status. Incomes are rewarded pretty generously. A lot of in our reproductive society. fitness strategies lead to early death because reproduction happens early. Yeah. So we basically invest all of our energy in early reproduction, and it doesn't much matter if that kills us later. People who um, pace themselves through life lose that early advantage. In fact, the good boys wind up raising the bad boys' kids often. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I was going to say that the stakes may be higher for a, an emergency physician that wants to change their situation. You know, you can't just quit your job. Yeah, it's not just you. Right. Kids yeah. are depending on a certain yeah. standard of living, uh, your wife and so on, or husband. husband. Yeah. I think the social navigation hypothesis helps us understand um, why depression occurs in people who are being very successful and people who are not being very successful um, because this problem of finding that you need to change your social niche is uh, that that can happen to anybody creative people oh by the way let me say uh, another thing I was reading a book um, in preparation for teaching a course on depression a couple years ago it's called risk factors for depression and um, in the preface of the book, they say, we're not going to deal with the... I'm shifting gears here a little bit. I hope that's okay, but... Um, we never go on tangents. We never do that. Yeah, never. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> they said in the preface of the book, you know, we're not... The elephant in the room is why do women get depressed more than men? And we don't have any idea. And this book is all about our state-of-the-art knowledge of risk factors of depression. Being female... Is the biggest risk factor, maybe. Talk about a competence mismatch. Look at how we've suppressed women's self-expression and full actualization forever. There, there is that. But also, throughout human evolutionary history, females, even though they have, may have more verbal skills and stuff like that, they, um, I would say, resort to depression involuntarily. Unconscious mental mechanisms are involved. They resort to depression more often because they just don't have the social status that where they can get social uh, they can't get traction like a um, a male can um, in arguing for um, any uh, change in their social niche I think females are at a disadvantage there may be, maybe in most barriers cultures. to changing some of those the expectations are much narrower, you know. You're supposed to be making babies, making dinner, um, et cetera, et cetera. Again, uh, we're, not, we're not advocating this. Listeners. No, no, not advocating it at all, <laughs> but I'm trying to explain uh, this social navigation hypothesis helps, helps us to explain why depression is so widespread. 
from people who are being successful and not. And also it helps us understand this major risk factor factor for depression of being female. Because in traditional societies, in the kind of situations where our minds evolved, females had, I think, um, less negotiating power than men. The th- so listen, it, so being a female general, almost yeah. defines a fitness opportunity mismatch. So we have, we have human women, and when we say females, it makes me think about some other species. I wanted to ask you, Paul, do we see analogs of, say, these sex differences in behaviors, mood to the extent that we can measure them in, in animal, other animals? Are there any use, is there any utility in taking a comparative approach to something like depression? Can we, can we get any insights? Can we get any insights from your, from your spiders or from other primates? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think... I think depression is an adaptation um, unique to that you humans. would see pretty unique to humans and our, our close ancestors, probably. Um, I mean, I think depression is only uh, warranted as an adaptation if you're dealing with an extremely complex social network. So this way is uh... more, way more complex, you know, contractual reciprocity, a complex contractual reciprocity is what I call it. I think it's a unique, uniquely human way of life. Complex contractual reciprocity. Complex because you're trading in multiple currencies with multiple partners. Those partners' needs and desires are changing. The values of the currencies are always changing. You got to keep track of that so you don't get, you know, screwed in your, in your deal making, your bargaining, you know. And in, when you've got that kind of super complex social network to continually navigate, um, and you've got all kinds of specialties that you could move into, there's all kinds of ways, you know, the whole lifelong learner thing again. Um, you know, just other animals. Well, I mean, one way to say it is that, I mean, compare the, the variety of social niches available to humans compared to our nearest living ancestor, chimps, or elephants, or whales, you know? So I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But I'm thinking about like the, the book Zubiquity um, by Barbara Natterson Horowitz, who makes the point that a lot of what we think of as human diseases have, have analogs in the veterinary medicine world. And if you cage you know, a lot of wild animals, they, they do repetitive behaviors, I was they thinking yeah. about pull their exactly. hair out, yes. they lose weight, they do weird stereotype behaviors, a bunch of things that are reminiscent of you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, uh, depression. They look mm-hmm. like depression. Citizens, yeah. parents, yeah. uh, macaws, yeah. parakeets, birds like that, look, they're tear their feathers animals. out and then die of hypothermia and they're social. But big cats pace and stop eating and die and they're solitary creatures. So... Um, clearly, there are evolutionary roots to depression or evolutionary bugs, whichever way we want to think about it, that are not tied to complex social networks right. because those two animals are opposite in that regard. Well, I think there's probably lots of very highly conserved um, neurochemical, endocrinological mechanisms that have been, um, you know, natural selection always starts with what's already been evolved. And so a lot of those same mechanisms that are causing those behaviors in animals that are basically being 
tortured um, are going to come into play potentially in, in depression. It's certainly not my area of expertise, but um, um, I know that some of the chemical mechanisms are, 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 are similar, but that's not surprising. Natural selection has simply tuned them in humans to serve this new function. They, you know, I can understand why the big cat in a cage is miserable, because that motivates him to seize any opportunity he can see to escape. It keeps him always in a mood to escape. And I can see where even an occasional payoff there could be an evolutionary reward. But why do they stop eating? Why do they reduce their fitness to escape should the opportunity ever present itself? How is that an adaptation? I think it's such an odd context for an animal like that to be in that the adaptations that um, evolved... Just simply couldn't account for such a different circumstance. No, it's such a novel but circumstance. But all of modern society is so different than the society we evolved in that I'm not sure you couldn't make the same case about our maladaptations to our modern society. And ER Doc, from an evolutionary standpoint, has everything. He's got all the resources his family could ever ask for, or she. I keep saying he because I'm old. All right, sorry about that. But um, he or she has all the resources they could ask for. Every evolutionary guarantor of the survival of their progeny they could possibly ask for, but they're unfulfilled because what they really want to be is a watercolor artist or something like that, or, or they just don't like constant stress and stuff, so they kill themselves. Well, that does not make sense as an evolutionary adaptation. They should stay around and make sure their progeny grow up at least. And so, um, but if we take the big cat story and say evolution simply couldn't account for a world as complex as ours, where you can be miserable because you can't be a watercolor artist. Evolution just didn't see that one coming and didn't plan for it. That actually makes more sense to let's me. Let's think about the reason why the physician couldn't become a watercolor artist. Part of the reason is that the schedule is made, uh, the shift is, is, you know, is, is required by the group. From um, a resource standpoint, the, hosp the hospital, right, the hospital, uh, you know, there's a contractual arrangement uh, and you could be fired for just cause if you don't show up for work. Mm -hmm. So there's so basically, you are obligated to do a whole variety of things that are extremely difficult. And you mentioned you're exposed to a lot of stress. So there's there are there are legal contractual arrangements that involve you know, human to human things. Uh, people interacting with corporations, which may seem impossible to negotiate or na or navigate for a lot of people. Um, you're, you're obligated to stay up all night, which is actually torture, and be sleep deprived. That we use that as, as a, the Geneva Convention say that that can be torture. So that so, you know, the reason why that the the emergency physician is not the watercolor artist is because there are all these other demands that that human groups and individual humans are expecting of that person, and so it's actually extremely difficult to get out of it. Sure, but it's spectacularly successful from a genetic pr uh, generation. Uh, I have no children. Progeneration standpoint. <laughs> I don't either, by the way. I know, so. <laughs> Not so successful. Mine are adopted. But we have, but we <laughs> have the resources. Yeah. You know? I have a foster canine. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Well, I think uh, in terms of what should happen in the uh, in the doctor's office, in the psychiatrist's office, yeah, let's, or in the psycho, psychotherapist's office. Yeah, I want to know what you think that my consulting psychiatrist should do different. Well, I think there has to be a real questioning attitude, a process of discovery that I think is way too often truncated. 
uh, in in most treatment of uh, depression and probably lots of other mental. Um, well, I think it's an adaptation, so I won't call it a disease, but let's call it a disorder. Um, we need to uh, being informed by this hypothesis and encourages a, a lengthy process of discovery um, in which the right kinds of questions are asked. Okay, um, like what? Well, like you know what? What are your dreams? Um, who are are there people in your social network that feel? that you feel are constraining your growth um, or demanding uh, things from you that you're tired of providing. You might not even know what you want to do differently, but um, the, the, the psychotherapist, whatever, whatever, they, whatever their title is, um, should be helping the the client dig into their subconscious and discover what their real dreams are and what are the barriers to attaining those dreams the prediction of this hypothesis is if that there are if there are important social partners that are blocking those dreams that's the context for significant depression so you have so basically the uh, evolutionary psychiatrist would share an office with a divorce attorney <laughs> um I mean that's one of the that's one thing that often has to happen, severing um, very important relationships that have tons of history, maybe a lot of positive history. Severing those relationships uh, often may be the only way to get the kind of niche change that um, your unconscious mind has decided is going to be more adaptive for you. I mean, maybe the emergency room physician needs to become an administrator instead of running around in the emergency room um, yeah, so much. Been anymore. there, tried that. No, uh, don't, don't recommend it. No, I, that's not the way <laughs> well, you know, I would I, I was tongue-in-cheek when I mentioned the divorce you know, attorney and the evolutionary psychiatrist. Because I think that well, I want to point out that a lot of what makes many people say change Romantic relationships might be, if you can just think about what happens in college and teenage years, people switch partners because they fall in love with somebody else, right? And so that previous arrangement may just be completely severed because you're head over heels with someone else that demands all of your, all of your attention. And so that love might actually perform many of the same functions. Here you are, yeah, you're, you're ignoring everybody else in your life. All these other contractual relationships, um, you know, formal or informal, are gone, right, when you fall in love? Yes. And, and you're establishing this new bond. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't involve being depressed at all. So uh, but it, but, it can, but, it can but, accomplish but some that, of the same if things. That, if that love is blocked yeah. by powerful social partners, if your um, ability to then you go, go with it. The Romeo and Juliet story. Yeah. That goes back to what I was saying yeah. before, that the perceived benefit of remaining the same yeah. becomes, in that case, less than the perceived benefit of making the jump. The expected benefit, I should say. Yeah. The expected benefit of changing so. is now greater than the expected benefit of staying the same. It's the flip side of the coin that the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the yeah. same. I think there's some real merit to some, to some of these ideas. 
Paul, and this is without me spending, I mean, I have thought about it. I have taught my students about some of these concepts. I think it is worth thinking about. Um, I do recognize that, that at this point, they are at a hypothesis stage without great solid empiric evidence of the kind that would really convince many of my you know, emergency physician or psychiatric colleagues. And yet the ideas do have some, some currency. I, I really like the idea of, of this idea that it's difficult to navigate social relationships in modern world, presumably in ancient human worlds also, and that there's a great deal of bargaining and, um, and signaling that's involved. That, that comes directly out of an evolutionary biology and behavioral ecology perspective. The idea of what constitutes an honest signal and how do, how do signalers and receivers um, make these kinds of arrangements. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to that. One prediction that these hypotheses all have in common is that in the situation where the depression is an adaptation, a feature rather than a bug, and by the way, it may sometimes be one and sometimes be the other, but in the situation where it's an adaptation rather than a bug, all of these hypotheses lead to the idea that we need to find the root cause, the unmet need, and address it rather than going after the symptom of depression. So in that sense, this conversation is useful because all of these circle around that same end point, I would say, final common pathway. Yeah, and I also want to make the point to our listeners that people have hung in for an hour and 40 minutes that what we're talking about today is essentially one, uh, one major group of theorists' ideas about depression. So Paul Watson, uh, we mentioned Andrew Thomas, uh, Ed Hagen, um, Paul Andrews, and Paul Andrews, a few a few others. There are there are there are indeed other ideas that are out there. This is not this is not these are not the only ideas that that uh, that seek to explain depression, uh, which does seem to have this paradoxical kind of component to it. Yeah, we're we're mixing a bunch of hypotheses, and in my case, that's too good of a word, speculations, because we don't have a final answer yet. And that's great because that means we get to open up some more questions. Yeah. More funding is needed. Yeah, more as, funding. Uh, as, send funding our way. Yeah. Send your funding to Postbox. <laughs> yeah. But one, it, one thing I'd point out to the audience is that uh, don't get um, distracted from these kinds of hypotheses possibly being right by um, explanations for depression that are on uh, what we might call the, the mechanistic level of analysis. Of course, any uh, evolutionary adaptation is going to have mechanisms behind it, neurochemical mechanisms in this case. Um, and there could be developmental influences. There could be genetic influences. Uh, this is not surprising. Um, all adaptations have complex neurophysiological, morphological underpinnings. So... Um, you know, one of one of the big lessons uh, in biology, and I guess I guess Darwin really, um, when he when he came up with the evolutionary level of analysis and evolutionary explanations for things, he 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 created levels of analysis. But the all the you know, it's an inf it's a problem with brain inflammation. It's a problem with an imbalance, a chemical imbalance. Okay, I mean that's a classical thing, or you know, you can't, you can't cover the why question, the paradox. You can't address the paradox of depression 
by simply talking about mechanisms. The, the mechanistic explanations cannot compete with and stand in for the evolutionary um, level of analysis of, of, any, uh, of any perspective adaptation. I, um, I take your point. Yeah, um, and a lot of people do get distracted by that. Um, and mm -hmm. so, I want to kind of highlight one additional idea uh, before we you know, move on to other topics. Um, this is, I'm not sure if you've read this paper, but the Pathos D, I think this is completely, it's a good, good segue from your, your, from what you just mentioned here. Yep. Um, have you heard of this? Yes. Yeah. So the Pathos D hypothesis by uh, Raison and Miller out of... Raison. Raison. I like that name. Yeah. I absolutely like that name. <laughs> out of Tucson and uh, Atlanta, Georgia and Emory. And the, the title is The Evolutionary Significance of Depression in Pathogen Host Defense. And just to really quickly summarize that, they, they look at genes. Uh, these, there's a genome-wide association study, or GWAS study, to find, uh, essentially, genetic or groups of genes that are associated with depression. And they this find is the pathogen defending itself from the host? No, pathogen the other, host way, other way around. It's an odd way to phrase it, but okay. They, they find well, post-defense against pathogens really is... That's how I, I would have said it. You have to add, add an extra... But then the acronym doesn't work, I guess. It doesn't, yeah. Right. So they say that they find that these genes are all involved in host defense against pathogens. Like fever. Like, like so they bring, we bring it back to fever and host defense. It triggers stress responses. Yeah. So, but they're, they're discovering that, at least in their analysis, that the multi multiplicity of genes that do lend some heritable component to features of depression and anxiety are tightly linked with immune responses against pathogens. And so they argue that because of this relationship, that the hypothesis, the pathos D hypothesis, provides an explanation for how depression can be non-adaptive in the social realm, which is the realm that we've been discussing this whole time, mm -hmm. whereas its risk alleles are nonetheless represented at prevalence rates that suggests an adaptive function. So they're saying that the, the social stuff is just an epiphenomenon that's maladaptive when the real function of these depre depression-linked alleles has to do with pathogen defense. I haven't seen this paper, but are they actually able to show that depressed people resist infection better than well people, or did they show one or two markers that could imply that after the next 10 or 20 iterations of research? I, I don't know. I'd have to... We could delve into the paper of greater detail. Um, I do think I mentioned sickness behavior as being something that resembles depression. Yeah. Um, even without having, say, a specific allele that makes makes you maybe express more of an inflammatory cytokine and may make you a little bit more depressed. Well, sickness um, behavior we, signals to our yeah. to our culture. If you want me digging latrines next month, you need to leave me alone this week, or I'll die. Sickness behavior has this great social function in terms of navigating. You become you have this you have this exalted role. You're a sick person. You get a note from your doctor. You don't have to go to work. Uh, you get people bring you food and give you additional shelter, and they warm you and do all these variety of, of important things. Um, so that ex exhibiting sickness behavior in a, in our cultural milieu is, I think, adaptive in much in some of the way that you've been describing. It yeah. takes takes you out of your other responsibilities temporarily. And presumably it doesn't last very long. Sometimes it does, of course. Yeah. If you have um, decent status in the group, if, yeah. you're, if, you, if you've kept up with your um, uh, job, constant job of honest signaling of commitment to your group, yeah. 
um, which is costly too. Yeah. Um, then yeah. Um, but if you're calling if, in sick every single day, it's not going to be an honest signal. No. no. Especially if you show up with um, ski mask tan lines the next day, as I remember a resident doing once. <laughs> Wait, that might have been me. <laughs> <laughs> not to my knowledge. <laughs> no, I did. Go, I did call in sick and go skiing. That, that has happened. You mentioned earlier um, that the mechanistic. Uh, approach doesn't isn't helpful here. Well, here's the no, way the mechanistic no, no. it doesn't replace doesn't the evolutionary. Replace, no, I would agree with that. But here's a, a way in which the mechanistic approach may be highly relevant. Let us imagine that depression is adaptive, say for a ruminative function. I'm, I'm working through that I want to change my social network connections, and it's really stressful for me. And so I go through these ruminative processes. There's a potential trap here. So. Let's just buy for a minute that that's actually the right answer and it's adaptive and it can lead to me later having a better social contract than I have now. But it's time consuming, it's obsessive, I'm having these same, same thoughts over and over. We actually know the neurologic mechanism by which thoughts that you have repeatedly become easier to have. They become self-perpetuating. Mm. Uh, if you want to read about this, Hebbian learning is what I'm referring to. It's not the answer, but it's certainly a major part of the answer. And so, as a consequence, later, maybe I successfully change my social contract, but I'm still in the habit of ruminating constantly about how my life could be better, and it's not everything it could be, and it's not like this storybook, and people don't appreciate me, and blah, blah. You know? And so my negative ruminations don't stop when my situation has actually, in any objective way, improved, even as measured against my own internal constructs. Mm -hmm. In other words, it was really, truly the right answer in this story that I'm telling. Still, my ruminations don't stop and I remain depressed when I should have gotten better. So what had been adaptive can become maladaptive in this scenario I'm constructing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Banging the table again. Well said. Well said, Tavi. Bang the table. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's gonna have to get edited out. <laughs> well, listen, I, wa I wanna just say a couple more words, more or less in support of uh, uh, Dr. Watson's ideas here, and this has to do with uh, thinking about human societies, at least in maybe the post-hunter-gatherer stage of human development. And people say that hunter-gatherers are among the most happy people. Have you heard that? And that actually after the agricultural, I mean, we can't, we don't have a time machine, but we can look at extant human hunter-gatherer groups, and we can perhaps maybe get some assessment of their happiness and their incidence of depression. But it, it was thought that, that really unhappiness became far more common after the agricultural revolution and after human societies became bigger and after human societies became more stratified and more hierarchical. Where in, in other words, where there were these, these various groupings. And of course, in the interaction of those complex societies, then there is... Uh, I'm sure even during um, hunter-gatherer times, there's always the likely possibility that you might find yourself one day a, a free individual and the next day an actual literal slave. Yeah. Well, we've and, talked before about yeah. the idea that now that we've successfully adapted the world to us, mm -hmm. we're no longer adapted to the world. This is not the world we evolved into. But I guess, I guess where I'm going with this is that some of this rumination, social navigation, etc., might actually, you could imagine a human world that's not that long ago. I mean, in New Mexico, there was slavery between Native American tribes and Hispanic colonists and, um, and other, other colonists uh, with just maybe a couple hundred years ago. 
This is this is not ancient history, even in our we're in our in our geography right here, um, where in which there may be a completely different mode of behavior, uh, depending on your social status, um, and that I'm sure that we would have probably diagnosed some of these people that were recently become slaves as being depressed, might decrease their value as a slave, and maybe actually make them more likely to to get out of um, some, you know, a very very exploitative. Uh, social arrangement yeah and it may backfire because it, it entails some serious costs yeah I would I would expect the adaptation to be sophisticated enough to um, determine whether I mean there are some contexts in which depression reasonably could work but if you're a slave um, unless you're really good at what you do um, and you have some special relationship with your owner. Um, getting depressed is probably going to almost certainly lead to negative consequences. And I, I would expect the adaptation that I'm talking about uh, with the niche change hypothesis to be sophisticated enough to see that um, depression in my in one situation is going to dig me into a hole, but in another situation... I could get massive fitness benefits out of finally persuading people to allow me to upgrade my social niche to one that is more in concert with my capacities for fitness-enhancing activity. And I, and I would argue, just add on to that that um, just to, again the way that I see that that working would be you know again making the best of a bad job. Mm-hmm. So it's not like. Uh, I wouldn't, would, so I wouldn't suggest that that it is again adaptive for all the individuals that express it. We've already sort of explained how that that might not be the case, mm-hmm. um, or that it should be self evidently a good thing because the way you describe it sounds like yeah, we should just all recognize that this is clearly just a this is a valuable strategy. Look, they're getting out of these negative social interactions and into better ones. If if that were the case. We, this should be obvious to us that, that these kinds of things are happening. But yeah. it's not. I think part of the adaptation is that it's non-obvious. Mm-hmm. Because you want, if, you're, if non-conscious mental mechanisms have caused depression to arise in you, um, you don't want to know that, you don't want to know what it's up to, your unconscious mind. Because you will then give clues to other people that you are um, trying to break contracts that are precious to them in order for this utilitarian, selfish reason to increase your inclusive fitness. And um, that is the fitness of you and your reasonably close relatives. And um, that's why it should look like sickness. It should look involuntary. Um, I predict that people who have been through depression may be the worst people to um, talk to to gain insights about what it could possibly be for. Because the last thing you want to do is if you go through a depression and it's successful under the terms of this hypothesis, you don't want to then start admitting to people that this was a strategy I used uh, to, um, you know, improve my life um, in spite of the fact that it was costly and painful and very inconvenient to you. I mean, that's not good for your reputation. Um, You want the people 
around you to feel like they helped you improve your life and then they're going to get follow-on benefits. But and, yeah, this whole thing should be, this whole that's, thing that's should, if you're, be, you're the interacting should be very cryptic, cryptic. The same people. So you have these, these iterative, iterative interactions with yeah. other people yeah. mm-hmm. and that you have the same kinds of relationships. I, I'm actually drawn to what you said earlier, Coffee, about and maybe this doesn't work in our modern society in which there's so many interactions that you can just pick up and move to a different city and change all of your social interactions. Yeah, well, nowadays, there almost everybody can find a reproductive partner, but in much of human history, that wasn't true. So if you had a niche that did not allow you to reproduce, yeah. even an incredibly costly strategy doesn't cost you anything. If you fail, you still don't reproduce. You're right where you started. But if you succeed, then you get a big gain. And when we look at depression now, it's not obvious to me that people are benefiting from it. But the effect size doesn't need to be so large that it is obvious. It only needs to be statistically significant to get sorted for. Mm-hmm. And that actually, and actually the, a lot about in evolution, in, evolution in terms of things that actually would drive natural selection, the effects can be actually quite small. Mm-hmm. Um, in medicine, a lot of times when we're looking at the efficacy of a new drug or a new procedure, uh, sometimes we say that something is statistically significant, but it's not clinically significant. Mm-hmm. So it would make no difference to adopt this new drug because really we're not going to see an important difference in our patients. Um, but I've always thought that some of these, some of these uh, things that are maybe not clinically significant, they actually can be very salient to evolution because the effect sizes can be extremely small. And when you magnify them over multiple generations, they can actually drive some of these dramatic changes and traits that mm-hmm. we see. And we think like, what the heck is up with this crazy trait? This, why does this child have a fever of 104 and looks like they're on death's door? We clearly have to do something about this. Why does this patient have these depressive symptoms that are seem so completely counterproductive. Um, so I, I think that, that that may play a role too. Yeah. So I'm not... Well, I have thought of a number of uh, uh, potential counter-arguments to this hypothesis. I'm not at all put off by the fact that it's counterintuitive. Tons of things in the world are counterintuitive. That doesn't surprise me a bit. Or that the effect isn't immediately obvious once you point to it. That's common too in evolutionary sorting and in natural selection. Mm-hmm. That's all I got on that. <laughs> Everybody's looking at me like I'm going to say something smart, but that'll there, probably there, never there happen. There is this, yeah, the pregnant pause. That'll probably never happen. <laughs> no, not at all. I'll just uh, throw this in and edit it out or not. But um, a lot of the uh, so called alternative evolutionary hypotheses for depression are are not evolutionary adaptationist hypotheses. Mm. They're hypotheses like this pathos D hypothesis, which says that, okay, we can identify an evolutionary process here that epiphenomenally led to depression. There's lots of those hypotheses. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think for like, for the pathos D hypothesis, we have to think about, okay, natural selection, uses the equipment, the traits, the adaptations that have evolved previously to build new adaptations. It never starts from ground zero. It never goes back to the drawing board. And so um, if there are genes that are good at fighting pathogens and that also are correlated and ca- or cause sickness behavior, you'd expect natural selection to grab a hold of those genes and use them as part of the... Uh, 
the mechanisms or machinery that it needs to build the depression adaptation. So, um, you know, that kind of finding doesn't really discourage me vis-a-vis the social navigation or an exchange hypothesis. Mm. Well, it would be very interesting to have the authors of this paper in the same place as you. Yeah. (laughs) And actually kind of hash that out. I'll tell you what I want. I would like, I think that there is some some merit to, again, some of the ideas that you've, you've fleshed out here. Um, like like any good scientist, I want to see it validated. Yeah. I want to see real predictions made. I want to see it tested. Yeah, me too. I want to see it actually put up against alternatives. I want to see it hashed out. And unfortunately, we've not quite gotten there yet um, in, in this field. Um, I'd also like, I think, but I think there's enough validity at least to you know, a chunk, the core, some of the core ideas that you described. And it's hard to argue against some of the pathos ideas, findings that they have, that I, I would like, I'd like to see a marriage of those, of those concepts in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And part of the way that I've thought about this, I mean, you argued a moment ago against the, the social stratification slavery idea, that that would be a counterproductive uh, way to express depression. But certainly I would expect moods and behaviors to be different depending on whether you're the, the slave you owner oh, yeah. or the slave. Um, and I would expect that the slave is also going to be um, potentially injured more often, uh, potentially have poor quality nutrition, uh, exposure to more pathogens, a less hygienic environment, um, and would have they had greater exposure to pathogens just by virtue of that social stratification. And we might see some similar things play out even in you know in societies that don't have slavery, uh, just just that, are, that that have other kinds of social stratifications, um, in which you you might see some good links between genes that would be associated with behavioral changes that might be adaptive and would also be linked with ways of coping with additional pathogen stress. Yep. Yep. So that's that's my own way of linking those two things together. Mm -hmm. But again, we're still in the realm of speculation and hypothesis. Well, that kind of synergy is more the rule than the exception. Physiology is parsimonious and it tries to work out negotiations very like that. So Mm -hmm. again, that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be surprising at all. If uh, depression were a maladaptive epiphenomenon, to say immunology or something, Mm -hmm. then it would have to be an epiphenomenon on something whose adaptive benefit was greater than the maladaptive cost of depression. So whatever it's tied to, whatever it's a shadow of, would have to be something good. Yes, indeed. Noticeably good. Yeah, yes, indeed. Mm Mm-hmm. I will say, I think that we are going to, we're getting on to two hours here. So I, I am very likely to, to cut this podcast into two. And I want to point out to us and to our listeners that, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about. Uh, Randy Nessie has contributed to, to, to this field about affective disorders or, and mood disorders and evolutionary ideas. Um, we have mentioned the smoke detector principle in previous uh, podcasts, um, but we haven't talked about, you know, anxiety. Uh, potential evolutionary hypotheses for PTSD, although we may have touched postpartum on that. depression. Postpartum depression. Uh, I know Ed Hagen has written about that one. Yeah, um, we haven't talked about mania um, and the idea that uh, sometimes you know, other other mood disorders may. There are people that have speculated that uh, genes linked with bipolar disorder may actually confer some benefits in terms of um, either individuals that are getting more reproductive opportunities when they're in the manic phase or that exhibit more creativity or their, their close relatives have these things. Um, we didn't, we didn't talk about Bernie Crespi and his ideas about schizophrenia and autism. Um, 
We haven't talked about sort of other signaling things that happen uh, in humans, uh, threat displays, uh, uh, you know, triumph displays, um, other, other signaling that, that is involved with either positive or negative moods. Um, Darwin did have a lot to say with this in terms of his book, Actually, Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. I'm, I'm, just, I'm saying there's a lot more to talk about with, with just with this. And this is one this is one chunk. This is one little sliver oh, of, of, of evolution. I think that we will have to revisit this. And as we're talking here, I kind of do think that, you know, it was great having Paul here. It would be fun to also have an actual living flesh and blood psychiatrist who takes care of these patients. And just to kind of say, well, what do you think about this? And I, I know one, a member of the faculty here who, who actually took my class on evolutionary medicine. So he's familiar with the topics. Uh-huh. He's had exposure to some of your ideas. Um, it might be, might be fun to, to bring if him They weren't on. too frustrated by us uh, speculating into their field. I think it would be great. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I actually think, and again, I'm speaking maybe completely out of turn here, that uh, psychiatrists in general are kind of open to these ideas. That they, it's hard not to think about some utility, at least of certainly of having emotions, right? We're not Vulcans. We're not Spock. We, we do exhibit I emotions. I aspire to be. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Well, who doesn't want to be Leonard Nimoy, at least, right? <laughs> so when you start thinking about the utility of emotions and you think about some of the extremes, it's, it's hard not to, to imagine that some potential mood disorders on some area of the spectrum may indeed be adaptive. Maybe I'm being too generous to Paul here because uh, we share the same research, uh, you know, Grad student advisors. <laughs> well, uh, today was my first day meeting Paul Watson, and I have to say I yeah. hugely enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much so for much. having me. Thank yeah. you so much for thanks, having Paul. me. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for coming. Okay. Well, good. That about wraps this one up. We'll get this onto the interwebs here pretty soon, and I hope you guys join us for the next time.